Good evening and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri. And start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our weekly Q&A. Tonight we're pulling best from Canberra Working Dogs. Lauren will be picking who she thinks has asked the best question of the night and they'll win a bag of Enduro high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Hey Loz, how are you going? Pretty good. How are you guys going? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, and not too bad myself now. I've got my uh, my ginger tea and I'm all settled in for the night. <laughs> How about yourself? Just a glass of water for me, not as exciting. That's right. I've got soda water here too. We bubbled it ourselves. Fancy. I know, I know. So um, for people out there that don't know you, Loz, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you come from, what you do? Yeah, no worries. Um, I've had a not as probably a straight line to working dogs as a lot of folks that have been on the show i my dad's been a farmer my whole life and that's where my passion for agriculture started but when i was old enough for school we moved to canberra and so i grew up in canberra my dad managed a few properties out of town so i spent as much time as i could out there i had a couple of horses and uh, dad ended up breeding two of his working dogs and i kept a pup and that was my first dog and we had Same. zero idea how to train a working dog. I vividly remember <laughs> one occasion of her chasing a sheep and swimming it across the dam and almost drowning it. So <laughs> that was a terrible introduction to the world of working dogs. And so she actually never worked because she got in so much trouble for chasing sheep. Uh, so it was many years before I ever had a working dog. And in between, I did plenty of different things. I finished school and then I did a few years doing office work in Canberra, as you do, and I hated it. Uh, worked in retail for a while and then I got really jack of it, so I just packed up and went and worked in Western Australia on a cattle station for a couple of years, got back yep. to what I wanted to be doing. Um, and while I was there, I wanted to get a dog. My dad had always had working dogs, but he'd always bought them trained, so we, we didn't have any idea about starting a dog or anything along those lines. And... I didn't really know what a good dog was. So I, I bought myself a coolie from a Lambie Coolies in Cairns and I flew him over to Western Australia. And he was my first working dog and the one that got me into actually learning to work dogs on stocks. So when I came back from Western Australia, he was about 12 months old and I decided I wanted to learn how to work him. And so I looked around for somewhere to go and I actually started off with Tony Mulverhill at Down Under Working Dogs. He did a yep. lot with the Cooley Club. And um, so off we went and he was a dog that was big on enthusiasm and pretty low on natural ability. <laughs> yeah. So thankfully he was pretty trainable and we battled through and that was sort of the start of it for me. And then since then I've worked on a number of different properties Um built up my team from that one dog up to owning a number of dogs of all different breeds. And then I took a step back from full-time farm work. I ran the Working Dog magazine for two years. And then I started a business near Canberra teaching people how to train their dogs on stock, which is Canberra Working yep. Dog. And then most recently I've just moved to near Clara where I'm uh, back into doing some more data management for seed stock businesses and doing a little dog stuff on the side so a bit all over the shop pretty good array of uh exposure into a whole heap of different things there as well 
Yeah, for sure. It's um, I think it's given me a good perspective, especially when it comes to teaching people, because I came from not knowing anything and and being from more of a traditional pet dog training background and then coming into working dogs a bit later and with a dog that was not particularly talented. So I had to learn everything the very hard way. So I think it's a good perspective to have. And, and um, you mentioned there Wally wasn't so naturally gifted. He had a great um, attitude. Um, but we don't see a lot of, well, traditionally, we don't see a lot of or hear about a lot of coolies um, like in the actual workplace anymore. What? What made you go down that avenue? They were pretty. <laughs> I love, I've, I've always loved merle-coloured dogs. Uh, I still do. I think they're beautiful. And not knowing much about working dogs at the time, as you do when you start out, you just think you buy a working dog and it'll work. So that's what I did. I bought a, a coolie that was really pretty. And he was from a starter Lambie. They do work their dogs on stock. So he yep. was from dogs that are working, which obviously was a benefit. But, um yeah, didn't really know any better. Bought a dog that was pretty, and that's how I started. <laughs> and there's a bit of a cool. <clears throat> I was just gonna say that um, Yamba there, you sold him and then you bought him back. Yeah, so I I got him going, and I mean, for a dog without, he had no eye at all, and no grip or hold on his stock, and for a dog like that. I, we did a lot, a lot of hours training with Tony and then at, at home as well. And I managed to get him yard trialing and he won a maiden yard trial and did a lot of station work for me. But personal circumstances meant I had to move him on um, at the time. It was a really heartbreaking decision because he was sort of my pet long before he was a worker. And he, he went through a couple of different homes finding the right fit. But then he actually ended up with a fellow in Victoria who kept him for a number of years and used him as a yard yard and truck dog. Um, and then when he sort of got a bit old and wasn't able to do the long days anymore, I was really grateful he got back in touch with me and asked if I wanted to bring him home to retire. So I did, and he's back. <laughs> oh, so he's back with you now? Yeah, well, he's actually not here with me at Woodstock. He's, uh, he's at Glenmore, the property I was living on, and he's staying with my ex-housemates there because he's a really good guard dog. And they're, they're living on the property on their own and they really liked having him around. So they asked if he could hang there. But whenever they're done with him, he'll come back here, live the high life. Oh, that's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really, it's really nice having him back. That's awesome. And you mentioned that um, your passion for livestock come from um, the old boy there. And um, one of your first dogs was some, a dog he gave to you. Do, you. do you remember much about that particular dog? Yeah, I remember heaps. So my dad always had working dogs. He managed three farms on the outskirts of Canberra while I was growing up on his own. So he always had two or three working dogs to get to get his job done. And he actually bought most of his dogs off Jim Luce, who yep. at the time, obviously, I had no idea who he was. But now I know that he's a pretty um, bit of a legend in the working dog world and done a lot of great things. So he used to buy dogs off Jim and he bought an old dog called Tough off Jim, who was a really good dog. I mean, I don't know how he would stand up now that I know much more about working dogs, but he was an excellent dog for dad and did everything he asked him to. And so he bred him over another bitch he had called Holly. I can't remember where she came from, whether she was also from Jim or not. Um, and we bred that litter and dad and I both kept a pup from it. I think I, I would have been only about 14 or 15 at the time. Um, so Skip was the one I kept 
and he kept one called Tess, but she had some kind of disease where she was always looked like she was wasting away. So we ended up rehoming her as a pet because she wasn't really suited to a working home. Um, but Skip was my loyal companion for many, many years. And even though she never ended up working because we used to just rouse on her for chasing sheep, we didn't know how to stop her any other way. She, um, she always came horse riding with me over the years and travelling around to horse competitions and that sort of thing. She was a really lovely dog. And a bit of time in WA, that's a um, big change from Canberra. Yeah, definitely. It's it's funny how things happen. I was really, I still am really big into horses and there's a fellow, a horse fellow, stock horse guy called Ian Hyde and he did a lot of clinics all around the place. He was living in New South Wales at the time and he also would travel to WA and he'd do clinics there for all the station employees sort of at the start of the season to get them up to a scratch riding the station horses to get out mustering and not get themselves killed. And so he Oh, we've lost you there for a sec, Loz. Um so that's how I ended up heading over there and it was an amazing experience. I'd recommend anybody to go do some station work if they can. We, you actually dropped out for a sec, but I'm assuming you got an opportunity to go and do station work and you took that up? Yeah, for sure. I um, I ran at it. <laughs> nah, that's great. And was it a scary moment? Was it, or you just went, no, nah, I'm going? It was definitely, I mean, I was I was very much stuck in doing work. I wasn't enjoying. So it was, it was a bit scary, but... I had sort of folks I knew that vouched for the place and I, um, I've kind of always been of the attitude that you go into things with a good attitude, you generally land on your feet. So off I went and it was, um, it was fantastic. That's awesome. That's unreal. That's unreal. And there was no and family or anything there either, people. right? <laughs> go again. Uh, oh, sorry. I was going to say there was no ties or anything. Like there was no family. That was just, Pack your bags and go. There was one other girl that I knew working yeah. on the station, but aside from that, no. And at one point, the boss, I, I got along with him really well, but um, he did have a little trouble keeping staff sometimes. And I remember at one point it was just him and me for about a month. <laughs> Thankfully, it was over the wet season, so it wasn't too flat out and we were just building hay feeders and such. But, um, yeah, that was a bit more isolated when there wasn't a big crew around. No, that's a quality I admire in you, Loz, like your, your bravery and just your go-getter attitude. I, I love it. That's Thanks, awesome. Dan. You're welcome, Bella. Sorry, Laura. Uh, Laura. Yeah, to me, Laura, Lawrence tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we, we cut you off there. That's all right. Um, I was just going to say you spent a fair bit of time with your horses. Do you want to know what you've done with them? Am I done with them? No, no, what, what you've done. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I, I came up through Pony Club. I mean, I was that horse mad kid who begged my parents for a horse and they weren't horsey at all. So <laughs> it was all a big thing of trial and error. They, they shipped me off. I actually worked as a junior staff, which is basically unpaid labour at a riding school when I was a kid. And I think they were hoping that would switch me off wanting a horse, but no such luck. Um, they ended up getting me one and the rest is history. And so I came up through Pony Club did sort of anything I could, but 
main focus through Pony Club was on mounted games and sporting. I just liked going fast. <laughs> um, and so I was in the state squad and did a bit of that sort of stuff. Um, then when I was too old for Pony Club, I sort of transferred over into stock horse showing and then into camp drafting. And camp drafting is still my main sort of interest, uh, along with a little bit of cutting when I can get to it and have the right horse. But, yeah, camp drafting and working stock on horses and covering country on a good horse is just all pretty special, I reckon. And we touched, just before we got on live there, we, we touched on your horses and you mentioned, like, just then about how special he's doing stuff. But now you, your horses are getting a bit of a different avenue for a special little girl. Is, that must be pretty special as well, right? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, I'm sort of a brand-new stepmom, I suppose, to a little five-year-old girl, and it's uh, n- never been somebody who wanted kids. It was something that I always thought I would never have is that having having a young horse-mad kid to sort of nurture, but it's um, it's turned out that way. I've gotten my old retired gelding back home for her to ride and and have pony rides on and it's um it's a pretty fun journey i think we'll see how it goes i never sort of envisioned myself as a pony club uh stepmom but we'll see if we get up there <laughs> and that would have to be rewarding on a different front like you said the one you never imagined yeah definitely definitely it's um it's i think it's pretty amazing watching animals interact with children it's just a whole nother dimension obviously the right ones not all of them um can adjust themselves to, to work with kids, but the ones that can are pretty special. Yeah. That, that, what that's... is it about that that you like? About watching animals sort of change themselves. I, I just think, I think it's really fascinating that a lot of the time we don't give them enough credit for how much they, they understand and they interpret of our world. And it's, it's pretty cool when you see the ones that do understand that bit more. It's the same with dogs and anything. That There's always those few that are just sort of operating on a different level and they're pretty pretty good to spend time with, those animals. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, that makes and and while, sense, yeah. And while we get back to dogs there, you've been fortunate enough to, to work dogs uh, in a lot of different environments with a lot of different people. You got, you got a few takeaways from that? Um, that's a very broad question. It is very extremely. <laughs> I mean, one of the main ones is that the only person a dog has to impress is the person who owns it. Love it. Um, Love that. Love that. We've all got such different requirements, such different opinions, such different ways of working, such different views on what makes a good dog. And I think it's pretty narrow to just have a rigid view of what that might be. Um I think there's a really broad definition of what a good dog can be. I mean, look at my coolie. I think I would say most people who have decent working dogs would never give a dog like that the time of day nowadays, but he did a ton of work for me. And when I first started working on properties, he was the only dog I had and he worked his guts out for me. And there's so many animals, dogs out there, especially that if you, if they get given a position where they can show you what they can do, not what they can't do. It's pretty amazing sometimes what comes out. And that's pretty important in itself, right? Like uh, focusing on the positives that a dog can do rather than the negatives. And even if there are a few negatives, like work, working on them, but just making that dog the best version of it that it can be. 
hundred percent, hundred percent, and it holds true for people too. Like we're all we all fit kind of differently into into places in life, and there's no point trying to hold a person or a dog to a standard that doesn't fit them. There's there's nearly always a place where a dog will fit, and if you can find it, then that's good. Yeah, that's right. And obviously, before you made the move, you down there in Canberra, um, Canberra working dogs. What what were some of the takeaways you got from from that particular role? That it was it was really interesting. I mean, a lot of people say it, but it's so true that in teaching you learn so much more. It really forces you to look at the how and the why of everything you do and find ways to uh explain and demonstrate things that are easy for people to understand so that bit was really valuable for myself um aside from all the folks i had coming out um it it was interesting because i had a lot of sort of head noise at the start i think most people do going into the similar thing thinking oh i'm not qualified who's going to want to learn off me i don't know enough i'm not performed enough that it it honestly was never an issue it, um, it's more, I think, about being able to meet people where they're at and and help them move forward than it is about being the world's best dog trainer or the world's best dog trialer. Um, I suppose it's all a bit sappy, but there's, the, there's a saying, how does it go? People don't care what you know until they know that you care which um, I think yeah. is very relevant. And, I mean, it was an interesting demographic. The folks I was working with, I would say probably 70% were folks living in Canberra who happened to have a working breed dog that they would like to give uh, an outlet for. And so many, many of the folks I had coming out had very little knowledge of working dogs or even working stock. So we were really starting from right back at zero which of course there's nothing wrong with. That's right. It just means you've got to really think about all the different aspects of working a dog. And it's not even just working the dog, it's where to where to stand in the yard, how to how to move your body to influence the sheep and, and all of those things. So it was um a really good experience in that respect because it really really makes you try and pare everything back down to its basic foundations which mm-hmm. is something probably everybody can benefit from, myself <laughs> included. Um, we all sometimes get a bit caught up in making things look pretty or tweak things here and there, but often really the best thing we can do is get the basics really, really good, and then the rest often takes care of itself. What do you call... You're all Laura. Oh, I... Sit on Sorry, just repeat that. That's all right. I've just put an air. Let's try this. Just say what do you guys call the basics? The basics. Well, I mean, if if you're talking about someone who's coming along wanting to learn that has no experience with dogs and stock. Then the basics are, I would say, explaining things like the flight zone, um, what what actually makes stock move and, and how to move them while keeping yeah. them calm, so respecting their flight zone, um, what 
sort of instinct their dog might have and how it will use that to work stock. So whether it's a dog with heading instinct or whether it's a dog with no heading instinct, which were plenty of plenty of dogs that came out, um, and how the type of instinct they have influence how they interact with stock. And then depending on that, how we can then step in and help guide them to be able to move the stock around in a way that's uh, constructive and safe for everybody, basically. Yeah. Beautiful. That makes sense. But did you ever find any any chat like dogs that really really challenged you, and you're just like, yeah. oh, I don't know if I'm going to get this dog started, and then just got yeah, you really no. really thinking. Yeah, heaps, and and in different ways. Like you've got the dogs that have. Uh, so I I I kind of came to think that there's two different levels of. I don't know if drive is the right word, but. Dogs to be a, be successful working stock, I think, have to have ability and they also have to have desire and they're not always linked. And so some dogs that are really challenging are dogs that have loads of ability but they don't have the desire. If things get a little hard or a little uncomfortable, they quit, they, they don't want to be there. Those dogs are really difficult, not difficult, but they're a challenge because you have to find ways to motivate them. And, of yeah. course, they may not be a dog that we would choose to go on with for, say, station work, but they're a dog that an owner wants to wants to learn how to work and give them something to do. So so it's it's it was my job to sort of find ways that we could get that working. Um, then you've got dogs on the other end of the scale who have really high desire, low natural ability. That's what my coolie was like. And that's a whole nother challenge <laughs> yeah. uh, trying to introduce some boundaries and some guidance, but uh, keeping the joy in the work for them. So it's no fun for a dog working if you're just wailing on them all the time. So trying to find that balance between that and keeping the stock safe. And then you've got dogs who are just really extreme in one trait. So it might be dogs that have really severe bite or dogs that have really, really strong eye. Uh, those sort of things are always a bit of a challenge to try and get them more balanced in their approach. Yeah, and and making sure that their owners and handlers have a great time at the same time, right? Hundred percent. I, th I think it's honestly when you're in that uh, that space of giving people and their dogs lessons and guidance, it's much more about uh, working with the human than it is the dog. The dogs are generally fairly simple. It's it's just getting trying to trying to help the human a feel comfortable and also get a good understanding of what you're trying to do. And and that's that's the crux of it is that every dog and every person learns differently. So you you're constantly trying to find the best way to get things across to whoever whoever the individual is that you're teaching at that moment. And it's never the same. That's probably the biggest challenge. Yeah, hundred percent. And do you reckon your dogs have improved since then? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in that, um, in that it's forced me to get really, not necessarily methodical because I don't tend to work in that way, but it's forced me to get really clear on the why and the how of everything I do. But also my dogs do not get worked or trained nearly as much anymore as they did <laughs> I think I have a quota for, for training time. And once that's full, I don't want any more. 
It, it'd be all right if they learned off watching you work other dogs, though, right? That would be perfect. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, Ronna, do, do you have a type or a style that you prefer? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm just a real sucker for a natural paddock dog. I really like dogs that have feel and a lot of intelligence and pretty natural break. Um, it, it, it can be a challenge to find that paired with strength and I'd probably certainly over the first uh, probably 10 years of my working dog career, career, that's a silly word, working oh, dog right. life, <laughs> um, I, I've definitely erred more towards the softer dogs that have those traits because it can be hard to find it all in one dog. And and I, I know a lot of people have the opposite experience, but personally I've found I can get nearly everything done that I need to get done with those softer dogs that have really correct paddock work if you can get a good working relationship with them and they understand what the job is as opposed to dogs that might be a bit more forward, a bit more positive, a bit pushier, but may not have as correct paddock work, which I'm sure is also a function of where you work and what kind of stock you work. Uh, but it, those sort of dogs tend to match my temperament. I like to work pretty steady and pretty quiet. And um, I'm, I'm pushing myself a bit now to, to, keep and run on dogs that have that bit more push but oh lord he does it raise my blood pressure sometimes <laughs> why, why are you looking at keeping on dogs like that now though if you know you like the softer ones well one of the main things is that now i'm not working stock full time um and living here now we have about five sheep to train dogs on and aside from that the only stock i've got to work are cattle Yep. And so the dogs I have are not not cattle dogs in any sense of the word. They're happy to work cattle, but they're not um, they're not cattle dogs. If as soon as the going gets tough, they just don't have yep. that that push uh, that strength on cattle. So if I want to do more of that kind of work, I'm going to need that that type of dog. But mm -hmm. it's um it's a bit of a journey trying to find that strength in a dog that I can still be happy with working on sheep and so yeah. far I probably haven't hit that sweet spot um yeah, yeah it's tough I'm, I think it some people never find it probably but I think a lot of people it takes a very long time to get uh a, an accurate picture of a what what the dog type of dog you want is and then b where to find or fairly close to that so I'm definitely still in that stage of figuring out what it is, yeah. Oh, we've lost her. She's going to bounce back any second now. <laughs> it's always You're like... back with us. Oh, we're back. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and just on that, and, and you mentioned that, do you think some people, um, they stick with what they have and, and they keep at it, uh, and they keep chipping away, chipping away, knowing not they don't quite have the dogs they need for that particular job, but they stick at it anyways. Do, do you have an opinion on that based on, like, do you think that sometimes it's just it's stubborn and, and we've got to just swallow our pride and, and, and find something else outside of where our comfort zone or try something that we normally wouldn't try? That's a, it's a really tough one. There's a lot of different facets to that. I think that... 
people tend to work with what they're comfortable with for sure. Um, and I mean, I've done that over the years. I've always gravitated towards those softer dogs that I can build up versus dogs I have to chip away at. I think it depends, really depends on your goals as a dog handler. I mean, if your dogs are doing the job you've got for them and you're happy with the way they're working, there's probably not any need to go outside of that unless you have ambitions to really improve your handling skills, training skills, do things that you're not currently doing. But And there's nothing wrong with either track. So if you do want to do that, then, yeah, you've really got to try and stretch yourself in the dogs that you take on and work. But there's kind of two sides to that coin. There's there's people who are never happy with any dog they've got because they can always find fault in it and they're always turning dogs over. Never impressed, never impressed. Find one fault, sell it on, get another one. And then there's the opposite end of that where someone will have one dog that might be pretty hopeless uh, and they just stick with it because they either don't know any better or don't have the confidence to, to or know where to go to, to find a different dog. So... I'd, I'd like to think most of us can find a happy medium in there that fits with our own aims and goals. Yeah, yeah 100%. And you mentioned earlier when we were speaking that, like, there's no way to learn like teaching. But away from the teaching, what about the exposure to the so many different types of dogs you had? Like, what were yeah. some of your biggest takeaways from that? I, I probably had a pretty unique uh, entrance into the working dog world because I started off with my coolie and then um, I actually ended up coming into things with somebody who was a really well-established trialer who had a lot of relationships with people within the working dog world. So I kind of walked in and was able to, to chat on a level playing field with all these big names in the working dog world. And that was probably not the way most people come in uh, so I was pretty lucky in that I was surrounded right from the start by some really high-quality dogs and really mm -hmm. good handlers. So uh, it, it may have been a good thing or a bad thing. It was probably pretty intimidating <laughs> at the start, walking in and just seeing what people can do with dogs when they're, like, right at the top of their game. It's unreal. Um, and then, yes, I also being lucky enough to to own and work and work with so so many different dogs of all the breeds you can think of uh has i think definitely been really beneficial and i yeah. i've always i know people like to put everybody in a in a breed camp with dogs and probably most people that know me would say i'm in the collie camp but i'm i'm really not steadfastly in any direction i i just like a dog if it works how i like it to work so i've i've had collies kelpies coolies crosses of all the above and I've found things I can like in most of them. So I think you can you can learn from any different. <laughs> That's my sausage dog going off in the background. <laughs> I was uh, happy there. <laughs> what's, she, what's she like in the yards? Oh, she'd love to get in there. She's got a lot of push and bark. I used to use her to chase the potty lambs away before I let my young dogs out. <laughs> yeah. That is such everyone's go-to question. Oh, what are you doing with that sausage dog? When's it go? <laughs> yeah, such an old joke now, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to spend time in like different feedlots and whatnot, and it's so funny. Like when people like they we work in stock, whether it's kelpies or collies, and then the token sausage dog comes in and just barks and gets everything pumping, and you watch the other dogs all start covering everywhere, but all the sheep are moving off that little yappy thing, 
it's an honor <laughs> watching it it's pretty cool i have i have plenty of videos i'll be training a young dog or videoing something for sale and next minute the sausage dog comes streaking along and splits all the sheep up and it's um it's always fun and it gives the uh, the, the dog that we're actually working something to do um, oh yeah it makes it work a bit harder yeah and and you, you touched on your team there um and and your love for any dog what, what what's in your current team there Loz? Uh, at the moment, I have my old girl, Sugar, who she was a freebie giveaway right back when I started. I only had my coolie at the time and a mate said, I've got a dog that's not working out. Do you want it? So I went and picked her up and that was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. Best, dog, best dog I've ever had and probably ever will. She's um, she, she's the one that's kind of shown me what you can achieve with that softer type dog because I mean, I, I worked up from being a station hand uh, for them for a while then. I was managing a seed stock and prime lamb operation predominantly on my own. And she's the dog that I took on every job, every job, no matter what it was. She was just always dependable and really intelligent and got me out a lot of kind of a lot of sticky situations. So she was a I was told Kelpie cross collie, but she works just like a collie, so I call her a collie. And I've never <laughs> been out of track down where she's from. Um, much to my sadness, I'd love to get another couple. Yeah. Um, I've got her and then I've got her daughter, Spot, who's side by one of my cousin's dogs, MGH Try, who's a collie. And her name is Spot and she's about two, a bit over two now. And she's got a lot of good things from her mother and a lot of a couple of other positive things from her dad that I was looking for, a little bit more oomph in the yard work. Uh Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a visitor and they're very unhappy about it. Um, she's going well. She's sort of just started trialling in a number of different disciplines. She's she's a bit too wide for my liking, which most people wouldn't expect me to ever say. But um, she, she's really wide and got a lot of eye, and so she finds it hard to come in and shift stock. But then funnily enough, she loves yard work. She'll back, she'll push around fences, so... Um, I've got her sugar spot. Who else do I have? Oh, Goose. So I have Goose, my mad Kelpie, who is <laughs> he's probably just gone 12 months. He might be 13 months now. And um, he's by a dog called Togo, who's by Zone of Jake Nowlands and out of a bitch called Brayside June. And he's out of an Everett bitch. Um, Nathan Cafey bred him. And he's a he's probably one of the better dogs I've ever had, but he also does my head in. He's very full on. Um, what, what makes him <laughs> one of the best dogs, and what makes him do your head in? He's um, uh, he's very full on. Like you let him out of the kennel, and he just bounces around you, barking. Um, I'm used to my collies who are pretty quiet and chill when they're not working stock, which he is not. Um, he's he's yeah. all go go go, pretty full on and pretty headstrong. But um, he's got a lot of really nice stuff on stock. He's he's got he started off pretty full on and real bitey and real pushy, but as he's gotten older, his eyes developed a bit, and he's actually got some really nice natural break. Especially if something like one sheep breaks out on its own, he's, he breaks out real nice to cover that. And he still wants sort of you get him behind stock, he's pretty full on for the first 20 seconds. But once you settle him down, he's really nice, even on flighty stock. 
and then he's got a heap of power in the yards. Free bark when you want it. He he loves to bark. He's um he's yeah he's he's a pretty cool dog. I think if if I can sort of stick with him and and get him where I want him, I think he'll be a really good utility type dog. He'll work cattle too. Like he's not um he's not a hanging dog or anything along those lines. But he's certainly stronger on cattle than than the other dogs I've got at the moment. So he's going to be pretty versatile. I think he's just pretty slow maturing and just a big goofball really <laughs> <laughs> then what else do i have i've got a couple of young ones i've got um a young border collie bitch called dollar who is side by mun's bill and out of craigley sky and she's shaping up real nice she hasn't had a heap of time on the stock because she keeps injuring herself but um She's looking pretty good at the moment, so I'll probably get her back onto the trainers soon. But she she looks like she's going to be pretty strong and pretty stylish, so hopefully she keeps shaping up like that. I'm kind of on a perpetual hunt for dogs that are strong enough on cattle but still pretty classy on sheep. And yeah. uh, then I've got a couple of couple of other collies hanging about who most most people that know me know I'm a sucker. So if they have a have a dog they aren't getting along with or not sure what to do with, they always ask if I'm. <laughs> a go and i nearly always say yes so i've got a couple of those yeah. hangers on at the moment too <laughs> and do you find that you reach a couple of like personal satisfaction goals with those particular types of dogs yeah definitely i um i just think there's there's a place for nearly every dog even if that place is not as a worker like i've i've taken on plenty of those dogs over the years and given them an opportunity to work and if it doesn't work out i then will find them a pet home as long as they have a, have a decent temperament to be a pet and I'm still in contact with a couple of the folks I've done that with. They still send me photos of their dog at the beach or at the dog park, etc. So I, yeah. I do find that pretty satisfying. And I mean, honestly, I've I don't think I've ever kept long term a dog that I've paid money for. The dogs that I've had the most success with have been hand me downs or rejects from from other people that couldn't get along with them. So <laughs> I fit with the misfits, I think. <laughs> no, that's cool. I, I love that you give those a go, and um, you're very well, known you for some time now. You're very open minded about everything, and that's a, a fantastic quality of yours. And you don't just write it off because someone else has. Like you really like give it its own time to develop. That, that's awesome. Yeah, try to do that. Has there been any big influences um, in your dog training? Yeah, for sure. Pro probably. It's all changed a bit as I've gone along, but the first one was definitely Tony Mulverhill at Down Under Working Dogs. He was amazing for me when I was starting out. He really sort of took me under his wing and gave me a lot of time and helped me with Yamba. It, it was an interesting experience starting out in the working dog world with a coolie. I went to a clinic with a very well-known trainer who uh, I 100% I agree is a fan, was a fantastic, fantastic handler and trainer, but you could tell pretty quickly that when I walked in with a dog that wasn't high on natural ability, he kind of just wrote us off and, and didn't really. Bit of cloud coverage again over Woodstock, it looks like. Mm. It's all right. No doubt she's going to bounce back here. Yep. We're back, I think. There yep. we go. Yeah, yeah. You're back. Yep. So you said um, you said you've seen the trailer, the trainer. Uh, well-known and because you had something out of the ordinary. Yeah, it just was really disheartening to sort of, it was just kind of pretty obvious that it wasn't worth their time to, to work with 
with me and the dog I had at the time. And as a young girl who just loved her dog, it was really disheartening. So it was really, um, I was really happy to then find Tony who he he's another one who will just meet anybody where they're at and try and help them. And that was exactly what I needed. And, and it showed like I managed to get somewhere with that dog. And he was the gateway then to the working dog world and getting better quality dogs and carrying on from there. So he was, he was definitely probably the first one. Um, then my partner at the time, Adam James, obviously was a huge influence. He's one of the better young handlers in the country. And even though we didn't work dogs together that often, um, just seeing him work dogs all the time and how he used them at work and at trials was was a really, really good grounding, especially um, I probably gravitate more toward the same type of dog, the real paddock ability. And then more recently I've really taken a lot from Jake Nallen. We, um, we were housemates for about 12 months there and so I think I annoyed the snot out of him training dogs. <laughs> Um, but that was another fantastic experience. Just it's it was something a bit out of the box, and um, it kind of clicked a lot of things for me. I I always used to have a lot of trouble with my dogs. It's probably why I gravitated toward the softer dogs. Is that I I'm a very soft handler, and the, the tougher dogs would just walk all over me. I couldn't get a handle on them. I couldn't get them serious about their work. They just run a mark or play. And the stuff that Jake does with really getting in the dog's head and, and working with their mindset more than what they're physically doing was sort of the missing piece in that for me in being able to handle those stronger dogs and really be able to get a look in when they're working stock. So that was um, really pivotable. Pivotable, that's not a word. Pivotal. It is now. It is as of today, that is a word. Pivotal in how I work dogs now. I mean, I don't do everything the same as Jake. Uh, I, I twist it probably for myself a bit, but it's it's really probably made a 180 in how I can um, I can relate to dogs and get them working for me now compared to how I used to. Yeah. Actually, that's a pretty important little piece you, you added right there. Um, you said you don't do it exactly like Jake, but you kind of do it to – you make the Loz version of it. Yeah. Like – like, let's let's be honest, like there's so many great trainers out there and there's so much access to schools at the moment, but making your own version of what you learn from other people, like, that's something that's probably um, people that try to mimic a lot. But w w what's your take on that? Like making your own version of something rather than try to do something the way someone else does it because we're not that particular person. Yeah, it's again, it's one of those ones where there's kind of at either end is bad, but the middle road is good. So I mean, it's, it's, you want to, if you want to learn from someone, you want to give every opportunity for what you're learning to stick. So you want to, you want to go all in as much as you can and give it a go and try and get it all pretty similar to sort of see, see how it works and make sure you're getting the right interpretation. Uh, but, but then once you have that understanding then you can start to mould it to yourself and your goals. Because like you said, we're not the same person. I mean, Jake's a pretty unique human. There's not really anybody else out there like him and there's no way I could manage my own self to manage dogs at the level that he does. It's it's pretty unreal. Um, so I've, I've got to adapt things to myself and how I work with dogs. And then there's also you can take that too far if you go in go to a trainer and you go into it thinking, oh, 
I'm I'm pretty crash hot. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna use what he tells me and make it mine. That's not gonna work so great either. You've kind of got to go in with a with a beginner's mindset or a learner's mindset and and uh, take as much in as you can. And then once you have that good understanding, then you can start to adapt it. I think anyway. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think you're under something. And you've mentioned there, like you, you spoke about your first dog, um, not being so talented, but having a great attitude uh, and obviously working with so many other dogs out there. Um, how important is trainability and, and or bitability or an attitude to you? Number one, you can't, you can have the most talented dog in the world, but if it doesn't want to be there, you can't make it. It's, um, in saying that, there's a really broad range of temperaments that suit people. So the temperament that will suit me isn't going to be the temperament that will suit somebody else, but they've got to have the basic drive, addiction, desire to work. You can't get anywhere without that. And then the rest of it, the amount of bitability is really up to the individual. Like there's some people who want to, supremely biddable dog because they want to be able to train on it a lot or put it exactly where they need it or just go to work all day and not have to yell at it. That's my own favourite thing to do. <laughs> um, but then there's other people who need a dog who is really headstrong, independent, can, can take a lot of pressure, can take a lot of handler pressure, and they're a very different type of dog and either one in the opposite home is not going to do well. So there's no narrow definition of what, what good temperament is, but you've got to have that baseline of that drive and addiction to be working stock. Mm -hmm. um, there's a question here from Rick Freeman. He's asked, what do you look for in a pup or do you like to see an older dog started before you consider buying it, which we sort of, you know, we, you've said before you, you seem to like a lot of people's rejects, but is there anything you look for in them before you actually decide to take them on is probably where he's going there. Uh, if I'm, if I'm taking one on from someone else, then I mean, oftentimes, no, I'll just take it and give it a shot. Cause I'm, especially since I've done Canberra working dogs, I'm in a pretty good position to find pet homes if something doesn't work out. So it's not a big deal if it's, if it's good or not. But when it comes to choosing a dog, uh, I think that anybody has as much luck as anybody else. I don't think there's a fail proof way, but, um, the old, the old standards of, look at what the parents are doing and make sure they're doing the kind of work or working the kind of way that you like. Um, but when it comes to picking a pup, I just think pick the one you like. Um, for me, I'm, I'm pretty superficial. Sometimes I like a pretty dog <laughs> one that I think is pretty and it's, it's sort of never had a higher success or failure rate than any other method. I don't think, um, I think I honestly I don't think you can judge temperament that much as a little pup anyway. The latest pup I picked was the quietest, most chill pup oh. in a, in the litter when I picked her, and she's not anymore. She's the biggest firecracker. So <laughs> you just got to pick one and see what you can make. Yeah. Oh, you still with us there, Laws? We'll wait for that cloud to go back over. Must be a bit of rain in Woodstock tonight. It must be. She bounces back pretty quickly, though. Here we go. Yeah, it's very frustrating. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. And would I be right to assume you haven't bred a lot of working dogs? Uh, uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> yeah. no. Uh, so when uh, 
I've bred a lot of Kelpie litters, not myself, but as sort of yes. part of part of Ginny Kelpies along the way, we bred a fair number of litters together. Um, but under my own steam, maybe four or five litters, I'd say, a couple of Kelpie litters and then uh, two Collie litters. And, and although that, that, that's not – and I'm, I'm no disrespect at all, but that's not massive, right? One thing I really, really do admire you for is such an advocate for health within breeding dogs, and we've had this conversation many a times. Yeah. Um, like, do you want to do you want to touch on that for us a little bit? That, that is something I, I really do admire because um, you you you're upright, just own it, and I, and I love that. Yeah, for sure. I think it's I think it's really important that we talk about this stuff. It's it's for many years it's been something that's gets swept under the carpet because there's a real stigma around having dogs that have any health issues. But it's um it's something that can only be improved if it's talked about and people know about it and people learn about all the latest research and, and what's out there. So uh, it, it was really brought home to me. I've always had a, had an interest in breeding. I find it fascinating and trying to do the best we can by the animals we breed. But I, I got a pup. Oh, it was a lot of years ago now. It might have been six years ago. Really nice collie pup, like a real cracker of a pup. I was super excited about her. And then she started to get really uncoordinated when she was four or five months old and then she started to fall over and it all went downhill from there. And at the time we didn't really know what the problem was, but in hindsight it's highly likely that she had CA, which is cerebellar ataxia or cerebellar abiotrophy, CA, the shorter version. Um, I I can't say either of those words, so you're all over it. So it's a genetic disease that's, been found now in a lot of Australian working border collies and also in Australian working kelpies and it's not super common but it's common enough that um it's it's not nice I the the pup I had had the late onset form and I had to put her down at around seven or eight months because she just couldn't function and it was really heartbreaking and um thankfully recently in the last couple of years they've developed a dna test so that you can test to see if your dog is a carrier of the disease and so it's a simple recessive so the dog has to inherit two copies of the disease to be affected so it's something that can be managed using the dna testing that we now have access to so i know there's various opinions on dna testing and diseases in dogs but Honestly, the way the world is going, there's going to be a time when people will be held liable for producing puppies that have preventable genetic diseases. So it's something that even if you personally and ethically don't feel it's too big of an issue, it's going to be one day by law. Um, it's um, and, and there's certainly plenty of people out there who will happily breed from dogs who maybe carriers are affected and then just cull any pups that are affected. And it's it's not a route that I would choose, but it's it's still probably one of the better routes ethically. Um, but certainly producing pups that are affected by genetic diseases, it can be prevented by testing. It's it's really murky ground. And um, it's, it's such a simple thing, testing. It's, it's literally just a cheek swab. You pop in an envelope and put it in the mail. It's not super expensive. I think for the CA panel, the working dog panel from Dog Breeding Science, I think is like 65 bucks a dog and it gives you peace of mind. And there's nothing wrong with having carriers for these diseases. It's, it just that, means... That's what I think is very important. It's not a death sentence, right? 
being a carrier, not at all. No, yeah. being a so so a dog being a carrier means they'll never be affected, so they won't have any issues. And if you test them and you know that they're a carrier, you can then breed them with that knowledge by avoiding other dogs that are carriers. So there's there's absolutely no reason to pull a dog out of the gene pool that's a carrier. It's it's not it's not a terrible thing. It's just it happens. And if you test, you can then work around it as opposed to not testing, you're kind of shooting into the dark. You don't know what you're going to get. So have you found that, um, how do I word this, that there's an industry or a group of people that are very open about um, testing dogs and breeding, you know, if you want to use my dog, you need to understand that it's got X, Y, and Z and groups that aren't or is it you know a lot of people are still very much closed off to it i think it's slowly changing yeah. i think the the discovery of ca in australian working border collies has really opened it up a lot because there's a few really high profile breeders who have stood up and said i've got carriers of this disease in my dogs and yeah. they've been open about it and it's kind of shown some people that it's not as big a deal as they might have thought. Mm-hmm. I think I think in the past when we haven't had the test to be able to find carriers, a lot of people, even if they had a wobbly pup that they had to put down, would then really sweep it under the rug because we, we didn't know the mode of inheritance. And so if people heard that they're producing diseased pups, it's going to be a terrible thing for their business. So whether ethically or not it's the right thing to do, a lot of people will have done that. But nowadays with the test, it's it's really no big deal and it's much better to be upfront with it. And I think there's more and more people buying, selling, using stud dogs that are becoming aware of it and requesting test results before they make those those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's definitely something that, you know, needs to be spoken about more often. And is there a place you suggest getting those tests from? Yeah, so the only place you can get the test for CA is dog breeding science. Yeah. Um, so if you just Google dog breeding science, that'll come up. There are, depending on what sort of dogs you have, there are some other diseases you should test for before breeding. Um, but I would advise perhaps looking online. I don't have a full list on the top of my head. But um, if you ask in one of the working dog discussion groups, there's plenty of really knowledgeable people on there who'll say these are the things that have been popping up in those kind of dogs and you should probably test for just so that you know and can work around them. And and would would it be right to say that particular company is one that actually should be looked into because there are others out there that have quite inconclusive testing? Well, they're the only company so far that offer the test for that specific disease. So... They do a working dog panel, but it is actually quite limited. It only does, I think, CA, TNS, and CEA, which is the vision one. Um, And there are some other things you might want to test for. So if you want to test for everything, you'll generally have to go to two different companies, which is what I've done with my dogs. But if you've got a Kelpie, you can generally get away with just the panel that dog breeding science do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got collies, depending on whether you've got Australian or UK lines, you may need to go to two companies to, to cover all your bases. Yeah. And I know you said not to ask Nick's questions, but he's got a really good one here. <laughs> um, uh, do you think we should have a database that shows registered dogs and their testing status? I would absolutely love that. That'd be cool. um, I think there's a lot of steps between 
now and then considering we don't even have a searchable pedigree database at all. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I think that would be great. I know the ISDS in the UK, which is the International Sheepdog Society, it's compulsory to have eye testing done before a dog's registration can be accepted to, to yeah. try and manage the incidence of CEA in collies. Um, I, I think it would be a good thing. How it would be implemented, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. And 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 just off that, like like you mentioned earlier, like there's dogs out there that are carriers, and it's not a death sentence either. Like it's um they can still be used quite successfully if the bitch is clear on the other side, right? Or vice versa. Well, that's I actually did that. I my good old bitch sugar. I tested her and she was clear for everything and I then took her to a dog that I was well aware was a carrier for CA and I just tested the whole litter to know who were carriers and who weren't and I advised anybody buying a pup of the status of the pup they bought and there hasn't been any issues. Yeah. That's why I love you, Lars. <laughs> very open. There's nothing hidden. All right, and I love that about you. And while we're talking pups, um, is there a particular age that you like to start your pups and, and what does that look like? Not at all. It completely depends on on the pup and what they're showing me. I mean, I'll 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 happily show them sheep from a young age just to see if they're keen. But um, I don't <coughs> don't tend to worry too much. Really, the only thing I don't like is if they start working other dogs and other animals, but aren't interested in sheep yet. That's when oh, I start okay. to get a little. It's frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and I always struggle because um. I like to let my dogs out as a group and have a lot of time just being dogs. But if I have a pup that's starting that, then I'll often try and just get them a bit more isolated and, and try and show them that their outlet for work is going to be stock. But, um, but yeah, when it, when it comes to age, it totally varies. Like one of the, one of the dogs I've got here that uh, wasn't working out for a mate is like 12 months old and wasn't doing much. And now she's gone gangbusters. You show so much self-restraint. I don't know how you do it. Like, you don't just get that new toy and you're like, oh, let's, let's unwrap it and let's just get it going. <laughs> See, to me, the new toy is just having the dog and getting to know the dog. <laughs> I mean, the, the work the work is kind of the cherry on top. I love it. I love it. Um, question here come through from John Starr. He's asked, how old is the oldest dog that you um, – Sorry, I'll start again. How old is the oldest dog that has had the penny drop um, in the pet dogs that you've dealt with that haven't previously been introduced to stock? I had an 11-year-old border collie come along yep. and just went straight to it. It's unreal. It's if pretty crazy. It, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, it's amazing. I, and I love watching those ones. Like I was going to say, how did it make you feel? Oh, it's, it's awesome. I, I It's it's just a really cool feeling watching kind of the genetics unfold and come alive. And it's just a different side of the dog that their owners have never seen before. Yeah. It's really cool. And what about the owner? Like how, how did you feel watching the owner? They're, they're always amazed and it's great. It's, it's kind of like you just, <laughs> I feel sorry for them a bit because you feel like, you introduce them to this whole new world and you know where that road leads. <laughs> <laughs> Hundred percent. I feel you there. Like I had the same experience last week. There's a nine-year-old collie, uh, Kelpie here. Sorry, 
And Nana goes, oh, what, what's like your concern? Well, I said, my biggest concern, she's nine years old. I don't want her to have a heart attack if she really loves this. <laughs> and, and I had a laugh. We had a bit of a laugh about it. And just the the when that dog switched on, the look on that um, particular person's face is just, you, you couldn't buy that. It's also, I find, one of, one of the coolest things is that a lot of the people who come out are people who have a hard time managing their working dog. And even though... I was just offering working dog lessons. I did the odd behavioral thing, but predominantly working dog lessons. Just the insight they gained from learning a bit more about their instinct and how we can influence them on stock completely changed how they were able to then manage and relate to their dog in the home. And the difference for some of them was amazing. Without any sort of specific behavioral training, they were just able to change a few things in how they relate to the dog. And the dog and the humans were so much happier. Yeah, yeah, it, it's pretty cool. It's pretty and have you cool. had any friends then take it further, um, clients take it further and start trialling? Yes, I've had, uh, so one, my friend Sam, who her and her little dog Taser have started yard trialling. Yeah. doing a very good job. And unfortunately with the move, um, I left a lot of very disappointed clients. It was probably the hardest thing about moving was was leaving all the clients I built up. But um, some of them have gone on to other working dog clubs in the area and are still working towards hopefully getting to a trialing level with their dogs. Yep. That's awesome. And you mentioned, like, you mentioned before about dealing, like, with some, like, some good trainers out there. Do you was a lot of your training or has a lot of your training been on the job or do you set time aside to um to do a bit of training and if so what's what's your ideal setup? I'm much better at training on the job. I'm really terrible at training my dogs when it's just for the sake of training. Um I I, I have to say now that I'm not working full time working stock, I have so much respect for anybody who produces and maintains working dogs that can be at a high level without working stock every day. It's really yeah. bloody hard. I, I mean, they're probably people who have a bit more desire to train than I do. <laughs> I, For me, I, I don't find the actual training time that stimulating. I, I really like being out there trying to achieve a job with my dogs. Um, and so I, I had always spent a little bit of time with them getting basics, but mostly it was all done at work. And so now that I don't have that outlet, oh, it's a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> and how are you? Uh, how are you trying to get around that for your own your own bug and your own satisfaction? I uh, still haven't figured that out yet. Really, um, probably just changing the dogs they've got a little bit. I'm. Um, um, over the next six months, I'd say I'll have a bit of a restructure. Dogs that some dogs can handle not working full time and some can't. Um, so just trying to make sure that I have dogs that it's going to be fair on. And then possibly picking up some casual stock work for the sake of the dogs if I have time. But um, whether or not I have time remains to be seen. <laughs> I mean, we do we do have some trainer sheep here, but I certainly don't. I'm not someone who has the drive to go out and work my dogs and train a sheep really much at all, unless there's something specific I need to work on or I've got a young one coming on. I'd um I'd much rather. I think it's I think it's harder on a dog in a training situation. I think at work, 
not necessarily at work, but on bigger mobs and out in paddocks, it, it sort of seems the opposite, but I think it's a lot more forgiving on the dog. That there's a lot more room for them to to make mistakes and be in the wrong spot, and mostly things just resolve themselves when there when there's a mob for stock to find safety in, and there's a bit of room. Nothing feels too confined or under pressure. Things just tend to work a bit easier and flow a bit easier. So, trying trying to kind of replicate that in a training situation is the challenge, I think. And there's always a challenge. Yes. <laughs> and Laura touched on trialing there a bit earlier. Have you done a lot of trialing? And, and if so, how long? I don't know if I'd say a lot, but um, I've certainly done some trialing. I, I I mean, I started fairly early. I did my first yard trials with my coolie. That would have to be 10 or 12 years ago now. And I've done pretty well every type of trialing I can think of. I've done probably I've done mostly yard trialing and three sheep. Uh, I really enjoy utility trialing, but obviously there's not many of them on. I've also done the odd cattle trial. I've trialed on ducks. I've done an ISDS trial when it was at Geary. I've done plenty of just farm trials. So I, I really enjoy trialing. I think it's great to get out and test your dog in a bit more of a formal environment and catch up with all the people. The people are the best. Well, I mean, the dogs are probably the best bit of the sport, but the people are the second best. Yeah. <laughs> um, and have you got a greatest achievement to you? Um, pro- probably nothing real big in the performance stakes. I, I won a novice utility at the Victorian State Champs with with my old dog Sugar, which was pretty satisfying. But for me, it's more. I really like going out and achieving something I didn't know was going to work. So, I mean, recently a good example is I've been doing a couple of cattle trials and my dogs are not cattle dogs by any sense of the word, but every now and again they'll just pull it out and surprise me and that's a pretty pretty amazing feeling coming off with a dog that may not be suited to the job at hand but they just want to try for you. And um, I never get sick of that feeling. You are, why you why do you have a go at those trials knowing that your dog's not suited? Uh, well, A, I like to support trials that people put on. Yep. B, I like to challenge myself and my dogs. Um, yeah, I don't know, really. <laughs> you can no, only, you I... Can only, I mean, you can only get better by having a go, but I also know that uh, having a go is not going to turn my dogs into cattle dogs. Yep. But any experience I can get out there doing it, I think is going to improve me. And if I can get the skills to get around with a dog that's not suited to the job, one day when I have the dog that is, hopefully I'll be better equipped to to do the right thing with it. Yeah. Well, I, know, I know I've said I've admired a couple of things there tonight, Loz. And, Nick, you don't have to worry about anything. It's okay. I love you too, mate. Um, <laughs> but that, that is another thing I admire, that you will absolutely just have a crack at anything and you don't care the outcome, you just want to have a go to test yourself and your dog. And I think that is an absolute admirable um, characteristic, I suppose, and something that, you know, a lot of people, they kind of get pigeonholed or they won't have a crack at something because they're worried about what other people think. And and you just get out there and, and do it. And that's fantastic. Thanks, Dan. I think it's, if you find something scares you a bit, it's probably something you should have a go at. 
<laughs> it doesn't always work. But. No, that's right. And, and I'm assuming it's the same thing with the different aspects of, of real, let's put it, let's put it this way, real work in brackets um, that, that you've done as well, right? Like you, you go and have a crack at any particular situation just to, hey, let's check it out. Yeah, for sure. I think but there's, I mean, there's, there's something, <laughs> something to be gained from, from any any situation and if if it gives you gives you skills or knowledge then it's it's nearly always a win even if it's not technically a win that's a good, really good way to look at it I, I think um we haven't actually touched on it but those that don't know um you mentioned before you had the magazine yeah yeah I took that on for I think it was about two years I think I did five or six issues yeah um, took that on from Wayne. I just was I was managing the the seed stock and prime lamb operation at um, Kulak at the time, and was just you would have been well and truly busy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I just wanted a change. I was um just didn't have any time to put into my horses or my dogs outside of work, and was just getting a bit run down with that. So sort of the opportunity came up, and I'm Denard, and then decided to go for it. Um, yeah. It was another one of those things where didn't really have any business doing it, but thought, why not? Um, and yeah, it was it was a really fantastic experience. Um, it, it gave gave me a really interesting perspective on the working dog world, kind of as a whole, yeah. which you don't yeah. often see it that way. It's often very splintered into sort mm-hmm. of state associations and breeds and that sort of thing. So it was really interesting to to look at it as a whole and try and produce something that catered to, to most people within the working dog world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know what I was going to say. So I was going to say, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've had a good day and it's getting late. <laughs> um, no, you're right. Do you have a message out there? Or is there something we haven't touched on there today was that you'd like to have a chat about or mention? Oh, I don't know. Um, we sort of touched on it earlier, but I, I think it's, <clears throat> one of my kind of soapboxes is that for the for, for folks who trial and, and are pretty focused on breeding really high quality working dogs, which I think is really admirable. I think though we you can sort of forget that probably the majority of the agriculture industry that uses dogs are just happy with a dog that'll get to the other side of the sheep. And, and send them in your general direction. Like I think I think there are dogs that, that people at the top would write off for, for certain faults that would be the best dog somebody else has ever had. And, yeah. and I just like to see people who can understand that even if the dog might not be right for them, it'll probably be right for someone else. And it's not – I know a lot of people don't want to be seen producing dogs that are not of a high standard but in – um. I just think it's a real shame when dogs get written off, written off or um, disappear when when they don't suit somebody's standard who might be really really high and and often unachievable for a lot of dogs. So I, I like to see people giving dogs a shot in um, different places. In, you're a sucker for taking those in and rehoming them, aren't you? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> but please, nobody give me any more at the moment. I have too many. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself in that same boat. Um, yeah. I suppose, um, and, and having access to, you know, through Canberra Working Dogs, a lot of people there 
it kind of is a bit of an avenue where you have been able to, you know, successfully find homes for dogs as well. Yeah, That's for sure. Itself. Yeah. So is there any advice you'd like to give someone that wanted to pursue a career in the livestock industry? Just go for it. Like it's it's something, honestly, the whole industry is crying out for for workers. Um, I think if you, if you go into it with a good attitude, we'll give everything a go and just try and learn as much as you can. There's no, no end to how far you can get and, and no end to the directions you can go in. It's, it is a fantastic industry. Um, and the, the other piece of that too is don't be afraid to stand up for what you're worth as well. Like there, there are also a lot of places that will take a lot from you and not give you a whole lot in return. And just just be a little wary like if you're um if you've got the right attitude and you're happy to work you're worth what you're worth and and keep that in mind great advice just um sorry you go dan no all yours i was just gonna say um totally off topic in the next question so if you had something no, no, go for it. You're right. I was just going to say, is there anyone you'd like to see sit down on dog talk with? But Oh, I have not thought about this question. I probably should have prepared. Um, <laughs> oh, who would be good? I mean, I, I love listening to all the, the older oh. handlers. Um, and somebody like Jim Luce would be great, but I don't know if he's well enough. Or he's spoken to Jim. You haven't, you're not up to date. Oh, or? gosh. Crikey, I haven't listened in a while. That's <laughs> there you go. I'll have to go back and listen. Yeah, I, I don't know, really. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. I'll have no, to get I'll back to you on that one. You've, you've got our numbers and, and our email addresses and probably yep. direct contacts there anytime. So you can get in contact with us anytime yep. with all of that. It's actually funny. Just after I asked you that question about rehoming dogs, I literally just got two messages about dogs kelpies that need rehomed yeah right um, <laughs> so they just come through i'm like oh here we go um <laughs> they, they must have heard me my ears were burning um yeah. and uh was there and you don't have to be biased and you don't have to worry but was there a question tonight that uh stood out to you and i'll win a bag of enduro um working food high energy food for working dogs with a real kangaroo mate i honestly can't remember many of the questions um is it terrible that the only one i can remember is nick's that's Done. okay that's what i said you don't have to be biased and not picking because it was one of his questions but there, was, there was a couple of questions um come through tonight but you'd already answered them in like earlier on and everything but oh, the yeah. ones you did ask there was one about um looking for the right dog or pup um and older dogs versus young dogs sort of thing. And then there was one about the penny dropping um, and then Nick's question as well about the database. Yeah, I'd probably stick with Nick's. I think it's yeah. um, it's an interesting yeah. thought experiment anyway, even if we never get there. But the, the implications of it would be interesting. Yeah, I definitely, I think that's a really good idea. It's just the logistics of how we get it to work, isn't it? Yeah. Can I admit that I think it's an idea, but I don't want to admit it live because it's Nick's question. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'll get a message any time in the next 10 minutes, but <laughs> I don't love stirring him. <laughs> uh, you could have done a lot worse, Loz. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks, Nick. Uh, got your details there, mate. Bag of Enduro coming your way. And hey, Loz, also Bag of Enduro coming your way for being our guest. We really appreciate you jumping on tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. One last question as always. Um, if you had to choose between fighting 20 horses the size of ducks or one duck the size of a horse, which would you take on and why? Definitely the tiny horses. Ducks are terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I actually reckon you would just love having the ducks go around. I can imagine you building a rainbow bridge and just having them all dancing around. And no way. The place I used to work at Gundagai had geese and they are bloody terrifying. <laughs> they are. They are. Loz, thank you very much for jumping on tonight. Uh, I know you've got a, a, a young little girl there that needs to get to bed. So I appreciate you giving us your time. Um, and to all our viewers or listeners out there, either um, tuning in live or listening back, thank you very much. And please remember, we learn every day, and the day we stop learning from each other will be a sad one for all of us. Thank you. Thanks, Loz. Thanks, guys. Oh. Cheers.